Today on TechNado, we'll be talking with Bruce Wang of Packet. They're a bare metal cloud provider. We're also going to look at a lot of cybersecurity news, as well as one article that's going to test the maturity of the panel. That's all coming up on TechNado, starting right now. Hello and welcome to TechNado. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and today I'm joined by Mr. Don Pazette, as you can see over there. And we also have Mr. Justin Dennison over here today. We've got a, an interview coming up that's uh, a little dev-focused, and, and Justin, you're our, our dev guy, right? I'm, I'm going to try my best to be our dev guy. I, I, sometimes I think Peter oversells my abilities, but that's that's <laughs> neither here nor there. But yeah, it's uh, going to be a, a pretty good interview. Yeah, and Don invented the internet, actually, as well. So we've got both these these great, uh, great people here. Yeah, well, you know, between your radio voice, Justin's dev experience, and my questionable journalistic experience, then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it should be a good show. Yeah, my father <laughs> always said uh, that I had a face for radio. Well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> that, that explains a yeah, little bit. Are, yeah, that does explain Those are why bit. I have issues, but, uh, <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons I have issues, but... Let's get to the news today, and uh, and a big issue that's affecting uh, us over here in the U.S. right now is the government shutdown. Uh, if you're uh, furloughed right now, well, thank you for taking the time to, to join us on your downtime. Uh, also happening, a lot of TLS certificates are not renewed, leading to many websites down. That's the news from ZDNet.com. So, uh, Don, what exactly does this mean uh, for these websites? All right, so, you know, most websites are secured or should be secured at this point, especially government websites that handle sensitive data. Uh, most of them are using TLS certificates, what, what replaced SSL. And while it used to be it used to be pretty common to do three-year certs, most people only do one-year certs now. And uh, and even some services like Let's Encrypt will even do shorter, like a three-month cert. Uh, so it's got to renew every three months. If you don't renew, certificate expires and it's no longer valid. Well, there's a lot of the one-year certs that are coming up. And if the staff is furloughed, they're not there to change the certificate. So now you get websites where, you know, they, they still encrypt if you if you browse to them, but it's an expired certificate. You're not supposed to use it anymore, and so it throws up flags. Some web browsers won't let you progress to a site that has an expired certificate, making the site unreachable. Some services require it on the back end, and, well, that gets broken too. So it's kind of a whole mess, and normally an employee would be there to just say, hey, I'm going to replace the cert. That's not happening right now. So when this says websites are down, Sounds like the website is up, but maybe you're not able to render it on, on some sure. browsers, depending on what you have. Yeah, you know, it, there's there's browsers like um, like Chrome, mm -hmm. where it tells you, hey, you, you can't go to this site because the certificate's invalid, but you can hit the advanced button, and then you can just hit browse anyway. I right? always do. Is that wrong? I, it's, sure, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> just on What's the network. the worst could happen? It, it's like a giant red X, and yeah. it says, don't go here, and you're yeah. like, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, but but yeah. you know better than them, so I it's like fine. to live dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but there's other browsers like Firefox, where you actually have to add an exception for the certificate. And you have to have admin credentials and all, all sorts of crazy things to do it. Uh, and so in those cases, a user might not be able to do it and then won't be able to access the site. Now, they posted a list. This is on ZDNet. And ZDNet posted a list in here somewhere of different sites they had spotted. But there really weren't any that were truly significant. Uh, it was usually like minor sites or service sites that were a part got, of various things. It's got NASA, the U.S. Department of Justice, and the Court of Appeals are just some of the government agencies currently impacted. Well, I said significant, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean the Justice Department really do anything? Yeah, the space station is currently <laughs> down where uh, we think so, they've got enough supplies no, it, up there. It says that those those organizations are currently affected. Yeah. Like NASA.gov is, is up and running and it's fine and its certificate is fine. But there's individual sites like mm. services, microservices that make up these things. And so little 
pieces may be broken. Uh, there's some sites where you can't submit an application, that, that kind of thing, but it's not like super critical, at least not yet. My, my best part, uh, my favorite part of this article is, is that there's a line I, I don't see right now, but basically saying that no one was available for comment. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's like, all right, well, yeah, uh, you know, that would happen. The government shutdown, uh, it's only a partial shutdown. 25% yeah. of the government employees are furloughed right now. So really, it's just like one out of four people is furloughed. So that they could get somebody for comment. Somebody could be replacing these certificates. It's... Uh, uh, I think more of a willful thing. I'm not saying that's wrong. Like, hey, if, if they're going to screw over the employees, then why, why be motivated to work, right? Yeah, I can't decide if I'd rather be furloughed, meaning I, I'm, I'm at home and not getting paid, or have to work without getting paid, knowing that you will get that pay again later. Because yeah, if you're furloughed, you don't get money at all, right? You're not getting right? money. Yeah, yeah you get the short end. If you're not, you are still working and can't you know, start driving for Uber or something does, in the uh, does Aflac cover this? Will the duck come and give you money? Oh. I think you have to injure yourself oh, first. Yeah. Which uh, is, I, I thought there was like a, a subsection of some of those insurance plans where if you're like, this happens, they'll give you some money. Honestly, that's a great <laughs> business to start. <laughs> because this is a bigger issue. I saw a great uh, political cartoon that was like the parents talking to the kid on the couch like, you know, we'd really, uh, we understand you want to be a, a federal employee, but we'd really like you to do something more stable like street performer or, <laughs> or, or poet. <laughs> Poets. So, yeah, things that people had not thought about. All right, well, let's uh, shift gears to something uh, much happier now. Uh, a <laughs> DNS hijacking wave is targeting companies at an almost unprecedented scale. Uh, this is on Ars Technica. Um, that that doesn't sound good. Yeah. So you know this is this is really interesting. DNS hijacking attacks are some of the most effective and dangerous, right? So imagine. Imagine you have uh, just a phenomenal domain that's bringing in millions of dollars like, oh, I don't know, technado.com maybe, sure. right? So, <laughs> so you've got this domain. And maybe you've got the best industry firewalls. You're doing pen tests. You've got uh, all sorts of intrusion detection and so on. I think that's where your example, by the way, falls off. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, us. Technado. <laughs> yeah and you're on a shoestring budget. Uh, so then somebody hijacks your DNS domain and points it to all different servers. Well, all of that money and time and investment you put into securing that domain just goes right out the window. So these are really super effective attacks. They're also not attacks on you, whoever's you know, running the server. They're attacks on the DNS infrastructure. They usually focus around things like social engineering where they call up a DNS provider and they manage to gain access to whatever account it is that's managing your domains. And once they do that, they can redirect, and it is very difficult to get those pointed back. It never happens in under 24 hours. It takes a lot of work to get those things pointed back. It doesn't even take that long to propagate, right? I mean, even oh, yeah. if they did change it over, you've still got all that time. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's why it is so important. And people sometimes ask me, like, hey, Don, you reported on this, this giant compromise or whatever. What do we do to prevent it? In this case, what you do to prevent it is don't be a cheapskate when you register domain names, right? When you when you go for the dollar domain and and register for a you know, five year agreement for five bucks, that's the level of service you get, and the odds of somebody being able to social engineer your account are much much higher than if you were to register with one of the bigger names, you know, like the Amazon, Internet, um, Hover, or somebody like that. So my my current uh, uh, philosophy of of picking who has the prettiest girls in their Super Bowl commercial and buying domains from them. 
Yeah, yeah, not, not what I want to do. I, I, I'm going to have to jet out, guys. I got to go change some of my <laughs> okay. domain providers because who knows? I might have some of these right now. They're like, I didn't put this up here. Don't this worry, isn't mine. Uh, Justin. I already changed them for you. Oh, thanks, thanks. <laughs> it, it's set. hard to tell us apart, so I completely understand. <laughs> yeah, I just I was able to actually do a web call, like, and yeah, like, like, yeah, I'm obviously Justin. Justin. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, hey, people all yeah. look the same. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm from Virginia. Yeah. Wee. <laughs> you can't even tell us apart. This no, is amazing. No, All right. No. Separated at birth. All right. Well, back to me. This is Peter uh, <laughs> talking. <laughs> I wonder, it's probably different for people listening. There's there's people just listening and not, not seeing us. They, yeah. Redheaded people all sound the same, That's too, true. right? Okay. Yeah. yeah it's, the, it's the lack of soul that uh, really gets in there. All right. Uh, let's go, head over now to Naked Security uh, from Sophos. Uh, 2FA codes can be fished by a new pen test tool. So, um, Don, I, I knew all those words except 2FA codes. What's all right. That? So uh, 2FA or, or two-factor authentication, oh, right? okay. Uh, I know that. Yeah, there you go. Normally we call it MFA now, multi-factor, multifactor. authentication, yeah. right? Uh, but this is using the older term. Uh, when you log into a site and you punch in a username and a password, somebody could run a keylogger or a cross-site scripting attack or something like that to be able to intercept your password. Or they stand up a fake version of the site and they get your username and a password. Two-factor solves that because when you punch in that code, it's only good one time. So if somebody intercepts it, doesn't matter, right? Because it'll be a different code the next time you log in and so you're protected. So intercepting somebody's two-factor code has been pretty worthless for, for all, well, just by design. Well, there was an innovative approach to kind of get around this that we saw start to appear a year or two ago. And what's really significant here is that somebody created a tool that does this automatically. Oh, nice. Where they create what's effectively a proxy between you and the site that you're connecting to. And they show you a login page for whatever site it is, like Facebook or Google or whatever. And you punch in your username, you punch in your password, you punch in your 2FA code. And instead of sending the code right over to that provider you're sending it to the attacker's site. They then turn around and send it to the provider authenticating and get your session token. And at that point, they've got a session token. They don't need the code anymore. And they're able to get in and access your site and take over and do everything. But the whole time, you're still communicating through them. So instead of creating just a simple fake landing page, you're actually standing up a full-on proxy that does have the fake landing page, but then is showing real content from the actual site. So the end user isn't getting an error when they put in the code. They're actually getting through to the site and right. thinking everything works. So they don't, uh, they're not aware that there's been a problem. Yeah, and you know, it turns out they're on like Facebook.com mm -hmm. instead of Facebook. I and, love that site. Yeah, Facebook. Yeah. That would be face Duke, I guess. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> yeah, this show's going to go downhill. But uh, but yeah, so they're on a site like that. They don't know it. it everything looks right to them. But now their session's available for the attackers to use and exploit, rendering the second factor not not beneficial. Are, are these attacks kind of uh, easy to... So this proxy that's setting, do those go down and up very quickly? Or are there like fairly persistent ones? Or like, how does this persist? It seems like people would go, this is bad. Turn this off. <laughs> you would think. Most, <laughs> most people don't really look at what's going on, right? So honestly, for most people, if they saw an IP address in their URL bar, they probably wouldn't think twice about it. Like, that should say Facebook. But instead, it's 216.1. You know, they don't think about that. Um, the certificates, they need to be tied to whoever the actual provider is, right? But if it's a slightly one-off name, then people don't understand it. And you'll see ones where it's like Facebook dot. NorthAmericanEdge.org, and, and people just see that and think, oh, well, it's like an Edge server, but it's actually a, a fake server. Uh, so the, 
the average internet user is just not capable of detecting this. Yeah, and there are enough times, too, I feel like, when you're going through a shopping cart or something where it does change servers uh, intentionally. And so yeah. you're used to seeing, that, oh, this is the server they use for authentication, or this is the one they use for a shopping cart. And, and so that could throw you off there. Well, that's something fun to watch out. So uh, it, it's something that horrible that can happen that we have no way of detecting. Yeah, so uh, so the <laughs> the researchers that, that basically created this, they created a tool that will let you fire up a proxy and scrape a, a site to create the fake landing page and stand this up and use it. So if you want to test this, uh, not against the unsuspecting public, but like against your own internal employees, like if you want to train your employees, hey, how do you spot a page that's just not right? Here's a tool you can fire up and, and uh, make use of it. They're working on getting it put into some of the bigger tool sets into um, like uh, Kali Linux. It's not there yet, uh, but right now you can go and you can download it. Uh, it's, it's pretty neat, that the tool itself. And if you use it as an educational device, it's a great way to teach people about the weakness of how two-factor is great, but it's not perfect. Every system has some kind of weak link. In this scenario, the weak link is you. I was really proud of the marketing team uh, here this week, actually, because I got a, an email that I spotted and said, yeah, that's that's not legit, and, and was able to kind of push it to the side. And then two seconds later, heard my neighbor go, what the heck is this? This isn't right. <laughs> and then today, someone who wasn't there yesterday uh, got it as well. Uh, we all got an email saying that uh, you received a fax from such and such, Sweet. and click here to download the fax. And I think the problem for us was just like, a fax? If it had been... Hey, here's yeah. you know, here's <laughs> a pictures free of, you know, of you or things yeah. like that. Yeah, I'd click on that. Sure, I've I've brought many viruses into this company. You know, I was really impressed. Back. Our company as a whole, I think, is is pretty well trained, which mm -hmm. I guess makes sense since that's what we do. Uh, but I was renewing one of our extended validation certificates because you got to renew certs, right? The, the government's learning that. Uh, so I was renewing one of our certificates, and it's extended validation. So they have to call and verify your identity, and they called the front desk and. The our front desk staff is is trained in this, and they they wouldn't they wouldn't even disclose whether or not I worked here to nice. to them. So uh, we failed our validation. And I had to call back and schedule the call. But it, I, I told them like that is perfect. Yeah. That's what you need to do. You passed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what? Don't let anyone uh, get through to my phone. Yeah. <laughs> this this tool, you know, you're saying using it as educational. For some reason, I just have it like in my mind, setting up like little like glitter bombs on your desk or something. That if you fail. <laughs> It like sends you a text message you've been pwned, and then it and then it yeah, throws glitter awesome. all over your desk. Let's let's get working on that. that. That's like uh, was that positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement? It's, I don't punishment. It's, it's reinforcement. It's carrot it's, and yeah, stick. Yeah, yeah. It's glitter is pretty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a, a keyboard. All right, uh, let's shift gears. We've got uh, some more uplifting news um, as we <laughs> as we troll through this week here uh, over on ZDNet again. Over 87 gigs of email addresses and passwords exposed in a collection one dump. So uh, this sounds like an enormous breach. You know, it, it does. In, in several news sites, we're advertising this as a big breach, right? But what's actually going on here is it, there have been breaches, right? Uh, apparently a number of them. But somebody, an undisclosed source, has put together the databases for a number of different breaches. And they've gathered them all together into one big 87 gigabyte download. They uh, uploaded it to a mega drive or account and it just got discovered and people started downloading it. And so there's this treasure trove of credentials and many of the credentials are encrypted. So that's nice. But many of them have already been dehashed. So they were hashed with a weak hashing algorithm and they ran rainbow tables on it to dehash them. And the, uh, the creator of the Have I Been Pwned site, you know, 
because he he does that. He gathers these databases together so you can search and see if you have uh, been compromised. Uh, he ran some of his accounts against it, and he found his own credentials in there. So he said, this is valid data. It's real. We don't know where it came from. It's obviously the result of more than one breach, but it's all packaged in what they've, they've decided to call the Collection 1 dump. Now, they're calling it Collection 1, which makes me think, is, is there going to be a Collection 2, a Collection 3? Like, this could be the start of, of something significant. Well, that's like how they called World War One, World War One. They knew. I don't think they called it that until, sure until World War II. I've uh, always heard it called. Uh, we are not a history company. That is, uh, that is important. Well, you, know, you say history. That made me think of uh, Mel Brooks, right? History of the World, yeah. part one. And still still waiting on that part two. Yeah. Exactly. Well, they're, they're still working on that. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, so it's not necessarily that something recent has been, been hacked. but Yeah, it, these it could, could be... be very old. Yeah. Uh, and the, the the creator of Have I Been Pwned, I can't remember his name, is Tom something? Uh, it's in here somewhere, I'm sure. It's in this database. But, uh, <laughs> probably Hunt. Hunt is his last name. Troy Hunt. There we go. Troy Hunt. Uh, so he said he found his own credentials, but they were old credentials. So these are likely the results of old breaches, and somebody threw it together and stuck it there and probably forgot about it or whatever, and, and now it's just been discovered. So, uh, you know... It, this type of thing is uh, really where these breaches start to hit home is anybody can pull this, see what your previous credentials were. Credentials you may not even be using anymore, but start running against other sites. And maybe they find a site that you used historically that you've just forgotten about, and now they're able to log in and use that as a stepping stone to then go and do additional identity theft or credential compromise. All right, so if you haven't done it in a while, now's a good time to go back and change some old passwords mm -hmm. uh, and update all of those. All right, uh, I think we've just got two more depressing stories before we get to the good stuff. Uh, so this one is on uh, Slashdot on their developers' uh, looks like blog here. Uh, WordPress to show warnings on servers running outdated PHP versions. Is this? I feel like this is something we've talked about before, or there was different so, warning, or maybe it was Chrome, or yeah, Chrome had some various warnings that it was throwing up. This one's a little bit different because um, you know WordPress WordPress powers some. It's like 40% of the internet, something ridiculous like that. Most websites are running uh, WordPress or some variant of it. WordPress is super PHP heavy. And for the most part, it's been built on top of PHP 5. Well, PHP 5 and 7 all the way through 7, is it through 7.2 that's end of lifing? Uh, oh, no, not, I, not 7. It's 5 and 6 that are end yeah, of lifing, right? Uh, and, yeah. I, actually, I think they skipped. It was 5, 6, 5, 7. I'm not up on my yeah, version numbers on PH, PHP. Oh, I'm sorry I called you the... the I know. PHP is not my... That's your bag. That's, <laughs> <crazy>. <laughs> that's front end garbage. Uh, yeah. yes, so, you're, you're right, Don. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the the interesting thing here is uh, basically it's, it's a forced upgrade. You've got, you need to upgrade because you're not supported anymore, which means if there's a security vulnerability in that version of PHP, it's not going to get patched. The newer versions of PHP have been out for a while, right? You know, 7, 7.2, it's been out for a while. Everybody needs to upgrade. Well, not everybody's doing it. Hey, if my server's running fine, why upgrade? So WordPress is going to take an extra step and say, uh, you know what? If you're running an unsupported version of PHP, it's going to display a warning on there, not just for you, but for every visitor to your site. Every visitor to your site will see this banner saying this site is running an unsupported version of PHP. Now, I got to chuckle out of this for a few reasons. Uh, first off, WordPress is pushing this out as an update to WordPress. So if you're the kind of person that's not upgrading PHP, <laughs> you're probably not updating WordPress either. But the other one is, uh, you know, we, we actually have a few WordPress sites that we use. 
Uh, and we have them hosted through WP Engine, which is a, just a great WordPress provider if you're ever in the market for that kind of thing. But I, I was curious. I was like, wow, I've never worried about the version of PHP on there because WP Engine takes care of it. And then I checked, and sure enough, we're running one of the outdated versions, and they're actually pushing the updates. They are taking care of it, but they didn't rush forward with it. Like, even the big dogs were not in a hurry to upgrade PHP, so WordPress is finally going to try and force everybody's hand and say, look, it's time to go to the new version. So we'll have to see. I, you know, Justin, you have written PHP. Is it that significant of a difference? Like, is there a whole code porting mess when you go from one version to the next? Not that I know of. Now, granted, I... I'm not like super deep into it, but uh, I do know you get performance benefits from updating to seven. It it doesn't, in my experience, it hasn't been that big of an issue. But you never know. Maybe a plugin is using a an older version of a function that has different argument types, and you don't want to upgrade because then all your plugins break, and that just kind of takes your site down. So, you know, from the developer side, I'm like I can understand this, but I'm. Since working here, I've gotten really paranoid about security, so I'm just like, yeah, update, 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 yeah. Uh, and then just go ahead and take that brunt incrementally instead of waiting and having someone going, <laughs> you have to update now, and now you have to rush and, and kind of figure all those things out. Yeah, I know um, some languages like Python, the difference between Python 2 and Python 3 is is fairly significant, and that's been a nightmare, getting people to switch over to Python 3. So PHP... Maybe it's in the same boat, or maybe it's not so bad. I, I don't know. But uh, according to W3 Techs, 66.7% of all internet sites run an unsupported PHP version. So that's a huge portion of websites that are out there. If you're responsible for website, look into upgrading PHP. Yeah, and, and as you said, it's it's out now. So go ahead and, and head over to your domain and see if you see that, and you'll know you've and got it's free. Uh, some work. You don't even need a support contract. Beautiful. <laughs> just update it. All right, uh, next over on bleepingcomputer.com, over 140 international airlines affected by a major security breach. And whenever I hear stuff like that, I'm I'm thinking they've hacked into air traffic control and uh, and things are going to get ugly. But are we talking about like ticketing systems? Yeah, this one, it was actually a compromise based around confirmation numbers. Okay. And, uh, you know, if you've booked a flight in the last handful of years, there's always a confirmation number. And I've always been really surprised about how they're just five characters. And you know, um, I'm trying to remember what my, uh, my my confirmation number for a flight I just went on was, it was like S-T-O-O-G, like stooge. And I was like, well, oh, that's, that's flattering. Um, but it's only five characters. Yeah. And so I, I was thinking about it, like, how, how hard is it to brute force a five-character string? It's not hard. It, it wouldn't take long at all. Justin's doing the math. Yeah, yeah I, I, I was like, well, if it's uh, it was uppercase letters. They were all uppercase yeah, letters. Uppercase letters, and then you had numbers. What is that? That's 36 Not to even numbers. The, they were just letters. Oh, just letters. That's 26 to the fifth power, which sounds like a lot, but it's roughly on For the order computer? of 100,000. Yeah, yeah that's, that's not a big deal. Yeah. So some security researchers were looking at this, uh, the Amadeus ticket booking system, which if you've never heard of Amadeus, um, well, you know, famous musical composer, yeah. but the ticket booking system is not one that we would normally interact with. It's the one that airlines use to sync up all their ticket data between each other. Uh, so it's used by over 141 international airlines, a big deal. And what the researchers found was that when you booked a flight through their system, the URL that was generated and the link that would be emailed to you in plain text and all that contained that locator code, that um, booking number. And they found that they could brute force that, 
And once they brute forced it and guessed it, not only could they use that to view your flight information, at that point they had skipped authentication and it would actually let them modify records. They could cancel flights, change seats. Like they could do all sorts of crazy things. The system was wildly unsecure once they knew that locator code. Uh, and so they uh, they actually, Bleeping Computer did a great write-up on it. They gave some examples of how it worked and they kind of show it. Uh, they were using an Israeli airline to demonstrate, but it's a, a significant compromise. Now there's a little bit of controversy around this because um, Amadeus came out after three days and said, okay, we fixed it. You know, the, the problem is taken care of. You can't brute force that uh, locator code anymore. All right, well, they did fix that. But the underlying problem of if you know somebody's locator code, you can change their account, that's still there. And as far as I'm aware, as of this very moment, that is still present in there. So this will be a developing story. I'm sure we'll find out more uh, as time goes on. But this is is pretty significant because airlines, they store a little bit of your data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, passport info, mm-hmm. uh, all that kind of stuff. Seat so location. A lot of, of personal, yeah. yeah. Whether I get air conditioner or not. Kosher meal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Special <laughs> dietary concerns. They, <laughs> they know all that. But that's why I might have been in the middle seat last time. Someone, <laughs> someone is very Sorry mad at me. That. Yeah. Well, after what I did to your domains, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, feel like, I feel like I deserve it. Uh, all right, let's move over to the pharonics.com uh, uh, site here. Uh, Fedora decides to not allow SSPLv1 licensed software into its repositories. Did I say that right? SS- yeah. Yep. All right. All right. Now, I, I hate licensing articles, and I don't normally bring them up on the podcast. You know, there's GPL version 2 or, or uh, you know, BSD license or whatever. There's huge licensing wars that happen. There's the the EFF and a few other licensing organizations that live in this world. Now, hold on. There, there are people listening to this podcast as they drive, so they could be dozing off as you're talking about yeah, that it, licensing it, stuff. So. It's boring and lame. Uh, but this was a really interesting one, so I, I wanted to bring it up because uh, MongoDB— Right, which is a very big document-oriented uh, database system or document store database uh, that kind of falls in that whole no SQL space. It's very popular and trendy right now. They decided they wanted to roll out a new license. And what they were concerned about was that there were big providers, especially Amazon was who they were really focusing on. Amazon just rolled out a managed Mongo database as part of AWS. And so Amazon is now actively making money off of Mongo. And they're developing infrastructure to support deploying Mongo but they're not sharing that with the Mongo project. So Mongo's not really benefiting in any way by Amazon running their effectively free software, right? So Mongo decided to change their license. They took the GPL, the GNU public license that says, you know, the software is free. And they changed it to say, the software is free unless you're one of the world's largest cloud hosts, in which case you need to share all of your source code with us or buy an enterprise license. In other words, pay for the free software. So, uh, you know, Amazon looked at that and said, well, we're not going to do that. And, uh, you know, and that was it. Well, uh, several other operating systems have started looking at this. And, and with Fedora, which is kind of you know, run by Red Hat, uh, they looked at the license and said, wow, you know, what you're actually doing is making your software not free. You can call it free if you want, but as long as there's these stipulations and requirements on it, it's free if we give you our modified source code. Well, that's paying for it. You're paying for it with source code. Uh, and so what they've said is that's not a free license, and as a result, it cannot be in the Fedora repositories. And so now MongoDB is being yanked from the Fedora repositories. Uh, I don't think it ever was in the Red Hat repositories. I believe it is in CentOS, though. I, I'm not sure if it'll come out of CentOS, but... 
that will will spread to some of the other distros over the next few weeks too. So a huge licensing battle happening over that. And a you know a good reminder that open source software is not always free. It's not a synonymous term. Yeah, that, this is one of those weird things because you can go on GitHub right now and just look at everything that, that Mongo's built. Mm -hmm. uh, they do have a managed server. I think it's Mongo Atlas that is hosted on AWS. So I, I don't know. Maybe there's some other things kind of pushing this along. I'm not a big fan when there's like abrupt license changes. Uh, for any software that you use, whether you've licensed it uh, by paying for it, right, with money or not, I, whenever that happens, I go, uh-oh, there's there's something buried now. There's, I need to go read mm -hmm. or hire a lawyer or something of that nature. So it's kind of odd that it's always been open source. If this was a big concern, then they should have just closed sourced it and said, hey, you got to buy a license or we'll give you a binary to install for free in a community edition yeah. or something. And, and we've seen stuff like this over the years. You know, there was OpenOffice, and then it had to get, it got forked for LibreOffice, so, you know, it could undergo a, a license change. There was uh, MySQL with MariaDB. So if it really became an issue, Amazon could always say, you know what, we'll just fork the last one that was under the GPL as opposed to this SSPL, and then we'll rename it. And if I had to rename MongoDB, I would call it Telegram so that you could say it was Telegram for Mongo. All right, moving on. <laughs> I'm going to make Mel Brooks jokes. Just yeah, Mel we found a theme. Uh, all right, this, uh, this is a great article at uh, motherboard.vice.com. Uh, the world's most beautiful data center is a supercomputer housed in a church, and this is uh, the 25th most powerful supercomputer, and it is in uh, Barcelona, uh, Spain. I believe I pronounced that right. Uh, yeah, it looks lovely. We've got yeah. some photos up there. I, I told the guys before the show, I said, uh, this isn't really news, but I just think it's really cool that they, they actually took the time to say, all right, here's this old church that's not being used. Let's turn it into a data center. But they still left it looking like a church. I mean, if you look, the doors are intact, the windows, and they built a raised, elevated, all-glass data center in the middle. It is gorgeous. I, I would love to to take a tour of that, you know, and, and just get a chance to kind of see what that's like. But you can actually rent time on this data center. It's, it's available online, so you can remotely connect into it, and uh, and they've got a number of projects they've handled on it. But it was the uh, uh, Tora Girona Chapel, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing incorrectly, uh, but it's neat to see them kind of repurpose that building. Uh, here's a picture of the outside of the church. Like, I, I wouldn't know. be surprised, too, if it had to stay looking like a church for architectural reasons in the city or yeah. something like that, So, um, but they're able to take advantage of the, the stone and, and, you know, solid construction there and, and make something pretty. But my, my big question is, how loud is it in there? Because, boy, it echoes in a church normally, and computers are loud. <laughs> you know, churches are actually designed to amplify the, the priest voice and carry it through the building, so you're probably right. I didn't even... I didn't even think about it, it that. It looks like there might be a little roof on top of the... So is this encased in glass yeah. so they can do, like, air conditioning and stuff? Oh, pro uh, that's probably if this is a really is. old church, do they have yeah. climate control? Yeah, well, it, you know, in most data centers, the air conditioning comes from the bottom, and so it's you know, under the subfloor. You see the vents under those racks right there, so it, it's mm -hmm. definitely got climate control inside yeah, of it. Yeah, you can tell it's raised up. But, you know, looking at the rest of the ceiling and stuff, I, I'll bet that building didn't have air conditioning. And you know, we don't have this in the U.S. because our country's not that old, but when you go to somewhere like Spain, they have cities that are a thousand years old, and so you have a lot of buildings that are just not rigged for plumbing, and, and this would be a great use for a building like that. I, I wish we, we saw more of this. It says this uh, computer is capable of performing 42.35 teraflops, which I just wanted to say. So it can play Fortnite. <laughs> yeah, it could, think how much Bitcoin <laughs> is being mined right now at this uh, Spanish church. 
Uh, hmm. That's uh, it's it's teraflops, huh? That says teraflops, uh, which is four uh, 42.35 trillion operations per second. It's a lot of free cell. Yeah. Making it one of the most powerful supercomputers in Europe at the time. Yeah, I saw some of the projects they had run through there, and it's you know stuff like sequencing a genome and and things that are heavy compute processes. There's a number of data centers like this around the world uh, that have supercomputers. Just what makes this one unique, I think, is the the setting. It'd be cool to go and tour this, and they say they do tours. You can actually go and and walk around. This this looks to be on some kind of like college campus or university. Yeah, campus, it's a university. Right? Um, where where did it say that? Uh, university of Catalonia. Sure. Polytechnic University. Let's go with it. Yeah. Uh, it does say that. Yeah. You're reading over my shoulder? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Polytechnic University of Catalonia. Yeah, they were looking for, said they needed a space um, that not only could support 45 or 44.5 tons of weight, but also with hundreds of square meters without columns. And so this allowed them the open square meterage. I wonder why they, they couldn't have columns. I don't know, because you would think that would, it's nice to put yeah, wires on. Like, I don't know. Wow, that is a very specific architectural requirement. Yeah. It's got to have this much space with no columns. I wonder if that means like columns down the middle, or does that just mean columns in general? Mm. Yeah. I, I, I can think of aesthetic reasons, yeah. but I can't think of any like structural reason to not have columns in a data center. Oh, by the way, this church was built in the 1940s, so. Oh. Oh. Boo. Oh. Yeah, that's only... Well, why do we do this story? And motherboard reporting, they didn't even find out why they didn't need columns. This, yeah, this story yeah. is full of holes, <laughs> and we're sorry. It's, it's not even real. I think it's time that we get to some real news. <laughs> All right, time to right. move on to our, our capstone so, article. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's be adults. Let's be adults. Uh, this one on boingboing.net, uh, Slack's new logo is a penis swastika. Uh, Don? I think it speaks for itself, really. <laughs> so, uh, you know, rebranding. Peter, you have a marketing background. Uh -huh. For a company to change their logo... That's a pretty significant deal, right? It is. Yeah, there's a lot of printing and, uh, you know, uh, all these things you have to think about that your logo exists on that you have to go back and, and change. And half the time it's done not because you need it, but because the designers are like, you know, we haven't changed our logo in a while. And, uh, you know, Uber did this the other year. Uber I'm, did I'm, it. Let me see if I can Google and find one real quick. Uber had that that stylized U, mm -hmm. right? And everybody knew, like, oh, yeah, that's that's the Uber logo, that, that stylized U. And then they decided to change to uh, – I can't find their stupid logo. Oh, there it was. Uh, here. Yeah. They decided to change to the reverse Pac-Man eats a bolt. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. a letter C now. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, nobody looks at that and thinks – Uber, unless they've been trained to know that, versus the U, people people connect that with Uber. It made sense. <clears throat> to me, that was a bad logo change, right? And a lot of people are critical of that. Slack, they had the hashtag, right? They owned that. Everybody recognized it. And hashtags, people use that in social media, chat. It just made sense. A little colorful, a little playful, so it had that. When I saw the new logo, my first thought was that it was like a flower or squirting water, honestly, is what I actually thought, because uh, you, know, you kind of see the blue part first. Then the article started coming out about what other people saw when they looked at this logo, and then it just went off the rails. Uh, one person found that if you put a black square behind the logo, it has a swastika. <laughs> a, a backward swastika, yeah. we determined, right? Yeah. In you the know, negative space. So Mike mentioned that this morning when I, I was talking to him about it. He was like, oh, you know, it's, it's in reverse. And I said, well... I don't think that necessarily matters. If you have a shirt with a reverse swastika, it's not like all of a sudden okay. That's true. And and what do you what do you think Nazis see in the mirror? You know, that's that's, that's the logo true. they see. 
you know, I made a vampire joke. You know, maybe it's like vampires, and if sure. if, if you're in the near a mirror, all of a sudden it's hate speech. But otherwise, it's fine. Yeah. But so. this one also has colorful penises, which is nice uh, and a good change <laughs> to really help out the Slack brand. And and Don, your favorite part of this article is the tweet at the bottom. Do do we read that? Because yeah. there are people that are just listening. This guy really summed it up. Uh, what he said was. I know people at Slack, and I know they're smart, capable, and caring people. But once you hear, quote, swastika made of dicks, quote, <laughs> it's kind of over for the new logo. So <laughs> this is a, a bit of a rough patch. We'll see what happens. It's a weird logo. I'm not a big fan. Uh, even I didn't – when I first saw this logo, I didn't think swastika. I didn't, I didn't even think penises, right? I, I saw it and just thought it's a dumb logo, right? But – uh, with this kind of publicity, I wouldn't be surprised if they change logos again. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Airbnb went through this a while back, and that's still the same logo. Uh, I, I think in, in our current political climate, where <laughs> software tools like Bro feel like they have to change their name because of the negative connotations mm-hmm. around the term Bro— I I don't think you can keep a logo that's got a negative connotation attached to it like this. Well, I, don't, I was reading on on one of the articles we were just on was was uh, there was a suggested article talking about uh, how many companies are changing the uh, the terms master slave. Uh, oh yeah, because that's offensive. Uh, well, you know they passed a law in California. It was like ten years ago or something that no government agency was allowed to buy a product that used the master and slave tech terminology. Here it is, Python. Yeah. Python is joining yep. the movement. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, you find that terminology in a lot of things. Back then, the big problem was the IDE bus in computers. You had a master hard drive and a slave hard drive, right? And the PCI wasn't uh, – or not PCI, um, uh, serial ATA wasn't standardized yet uh, for everybody to use. And so they basically passed a law that said they couldn't buy computers anymore. <laughs> and so they had to do exceptions, and now now we have a SATA that just uses, you know, channels, and, and that's it. So that that's, that's stuff that people don't – People don't think about maybe when the technology is developed and climates change, people's opinions change, the meaning of words change, and sure. you end up in a, a situation where it's it's not bad to change if you're making it better. Uh, in this case, it, I, I, I don't think you're making it better. I think it's change for the sake of change, I guess. What was wrong with the hashtag? Well, I think the California legislature will obviously uh, take up a new uh, penis swastika bill uh, in the next session. Um, and, and take care of this. I was confused there for a moment. I was like, the master slave's not a good job, but we're back to the slack. Guy. Yeah, we're back. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I haven't said a lot that, here in this segment. And I'm, I've just been trying to bite my tongue going, all right, just don't laugh. Don't laugh. It, it is, uh, I, I noticed it this morning. The first thing I did was went to my phone. And I was like, slack. there it is. It's a new logo on my phone because I got auto updates. And uh, yeah, yeah, it rolled out this morning for me. And now I can't stop thinking about that. Now I've gotten all these notifications yeah. all day. I look at your phone and the, there it is. Yeah. Again. You yeah. know, I, I had an app uh, that changed logo a while back and, and it actually messed with my workflow because I was so used to launching my phone, clicking on that icon and the icon changed and it made it, it made it a little bit harder for me to launch that app for, for at least a week or two until I got yeah. used to the new logo. So this stuff impacts people's regular use. I, I'm whining about a very minor problem, but um, I don't know. It's 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 odd sometimes to see the decisions these people make. All right. Well, let's let's shift gears now. I think uh, we have an interview coming up here, uh, so uh, we're we're gonna go out west now, uh, and we're gonna talk uh, with someone from Packet. Uh, so I hadn't heard of Packet, but Justin, you're you're here because you've heard of Packet. I, I have heard of Packet. <laughs> what, what, what is Packet? Uh, it, it's a bare metal cloud provider. So it, it's Instead of having this virtualized layer like an AWS or Azure, I can request I need this server with an ARM processor or I need this server with this GPU 
um, uh, card, right? And you get that dedicated server. You don't necessarily have the shared tenancy. Uh, and it, it, they have some wonderful tooling on their website for developers. Terraform, Ansible, those type of things. They're, they're really trying to invest in that space. All right, well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get to that interview then. We're, we've got Bruce uh, Wang, who is one of the VPs, correct? Vice President of Software. Yeah, mm -hmm. so uh, let's go ahead and take a look at that interview right after this here on TechNATO. I'm James Packer. I'm the General Manager of Kirk ISS based in the Cayman Islands. I used IT Pro TV extensively in my last place. It grew very well, helped upskill the team. I had 110 engineers in the field and we had dozens of IT Pro accounts with the guys training and last year alone they passed over 40 certs by using the online training. I think I can safely say um, without IT Pro TV I wouldn't be where I was today because I only got this job on the back of the qualifications I have. All right, welcome back to TechNATO and as promised we we're going to have our interview now with Bruce Wang from Packet but we just opened up the connection and it seems like uh, someone else has taken over. Uh, over there from from packet. So who, who are we talking to here? Yeah, so my identity is not to be revealed. So by uh, by day I'm Bruce Wang, by night I'm Packetbot. Packet <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> All, right. All right. So, so those of you that are familiar with Packet know what just... we just saw. But <laughs> how you doing, just... Bruce? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. good. Yeah, thank it's you. It's a little raining outside in uh, California, but. Uh, it's nice. We need rain. So I thought the song said it never rains in California, but uh, <laughs> lies. I guess I lies in the media. So, yeah, yeah. That's we're in Nor NorCal. There's okay, big... so it, it always <laughs> rains in Northern California. <laughs> well, no, not not really. It's it's been pretty rough for us recently, but yeah, it's been it's been good. Rain is always good for us. <laughs> well, I think a, a good place to start uh, would be uh, for those of our uh, our listeners that are not familiar with Packet. Just give us kind of a. Uh, a broad stroke there of, of what is Packet. Yeah, uh, we're a bare metal cloud provider. Um, kind of at the heart of it is you can basically consume infrastructure uh, through APIs. And uh, when I say consume infrastructure, you're actually able to get physical machines. You can call our API. You, we can deliver you machines per hour, totally different types, kind of small ones to do dev tests, CI, CD stuff, and large machines and GPU types workloads as well. Um, and the big thing is we are all about unimpinated infrastructure and really kind of giving you access to the physical layer. Um, and so, you know, companies who really care about sort of their, you know, their machines in a certain configuration or having certain um, settings, um, that's something that we allow people to do. Um, and it's really kind of the, you know, you go to the traditional cloud providers and, and, and just so we're clear, we're actually not super competitive with them. I'll explain a little bit later. Um, but if you look at the traditional cloud providers, you know, they're at scale. They really care about kind of conforming. <laughs> uh, and then on the other side is really about, um, you know, doing it yourself, right? Racking and stacking your own infrastructure in a colo. Um, and we really wanted to provide something in between that, right? make it sort of dev friendly and really software consumable, but it's actually still physical gear that you're getting access to. Uh, and then you can do cool stuff like actually configuring BGP routes. Eventually they're gonna open up the BIOS so you can have certain settings turned on through the API. And some, some really kind of cool lower level stuff. And just so you know, I am not an infrastructure person. Um, I am software through and through. And so, uh, you know, for a long time, especially with sort of the growth of cloud providers, 
you start losing that. You don't really know what's underneath it anymore. <laughs> you know, you call an API, you get delivered some virtual machine, or you run some, you know, job in the background, um, and you just kind of not even sure what's back there, right? Um, and so for me, it's really interesting to kind of be involved with a company that is like really automating physical infrastructure. You know, I, I was kind of curious about that because, uh, you know, with this big trend in doing serverless applications and, yep, and just, you exactly. know, I, I throw it into, uh, what's the new Amazon one, Fargate or, yeah, or something? Fargate right? or you're, Lambda you're, or whatever. Yeah. But yep. in, in you yep. guys' case, you, you specialize in bare metal, and so there's, yeah. there's got to be something for that to land on. And so, what, right. how do you how do you find that middle ground to support the customers as conveniently as possible, but still give them access all the way down to the bare metal? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, it's actually a really hard challenge. Um, if you uh, our CEO Zach, our CEO founder Zach Smith, he actually wrote a blog about this about subscale. Um, like hyperscaling is, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's easier because you, you may have four server configurations and you just kind of like normalize everything, right? Um, and so th that is our challenge is kind of dealing with sort of the differences, right? Like hardware differences. We'll have a bunch of different server types. We'll have some machines with certain types of, 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 of chipsets. But that actually gives us an advantage in another way is that Think, think about as a consumer today, if you wanted to consume, you know, for instance, we helped uh, Intel Epic, you know, chip launch. We've helped uh, work, you know, we, we, we helped run the Works on ARM project, which is like consuming ARM chips. So if you, if you were a developer or someone and you wanted to consume infrastructure at that level or have that choice of, hey, I want to try, um, you know, Intel Optane or we want to try AMD Epics or uh, whatever, um, you know, it, it, it's like I have to go out and buy it myself and then rack and stack it myself. And so we kind of give you that little, you know, middle layer. Um, and and it, it, it goes back to people who really care, right? It, it's not about the like generic workloads. You know, obviously generic workloads can add up over time. Um, and it's not just about running the serverless script. It's really for people who really care about having that control and wanting to run it a certain way and have the gear configured a certain way. Um, and that's sort of what we provide. We're that, sort of that enabling technology. Um, but it just so happens that something that's really interesting that's happening because of our experience is what's happening in edge compute, right? Um, and so that's sort of where we're starting to kind of go into the edge compute world. Um, that's really exciting for us. You know, I, when I when I first started looking into to your service and what you guys do, uh, I started thinking about all the different challenges, right? So like, what would be really yeah. hard to achieve here? And you know, with yeah. with any cloud provider, the the customer has to put trust in the cloud provider. So I sure. I, I trust that Microsoft or Amazon or Packet will, will safely store yeah. my data. And when it's a yep. virtual machine, I I, yep. I find that it's kind of easy to assign that trust. Like, all right, yeah, they're gonna store my my data in a virtual hard drive that'll get scrubbed when it's done. Mm -hmm. um, memory won't stay resident because it was a VM. But right. on a physical machine, that's that's a lot harder to do, isn't it? Like to to scrub right. a machine after a customer's done with it? Yeah, well, I mean, yes and no, because if you think about it in a virtual world, the, the big concern is noisy neighbors, right? And if you look at the heart bleed problem, it was really at the kernel level and, and at sort of being able to actually see across VMs, right? Which was a, was a big issue. Um, and so the tr it, it depends because yes, we run a deprop process. Every time you launch a machine, we run a deprop process that does kind of all the scrubbing and all the things. Um, so on one hand, it's like, yeah, virtual machines. But then if you think about it, like 
you are given the whole entire physical machine, right? And you have access and you can sort of configure uh, the, the routing, you know, sort of really nicely. So it's it completely walled off. And so you get a lot of, I, I think on one hand, you actually get more trust because we're, we're giving it to you and you have 100% usage of it. it. You know, if it's acting weird, it's not because someone's doing something else or the schedule doesn't fault. work, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or on the rare occasions, it might be our fault or, or you know, something's going on with the network or a drive's failing or something like that. Um, so we de we're definitely at more of an infrastructure level. Uh, you know, I think the problem is our API looks very similar to some of the other cloud providers, so we get lumped into them. Um, but I think we're really going after a different different clientele. You know, and, and it's it's um, pretty unique. Like I, I don't I don't know of anybody that exposes BIOS settings through API. You know that that kind of thing. That's well, not yet. That's a feature that's on the roadmap. But yeah, yeah. But but that but that's something we actually do is we'll we'll like configure for some clients. We might actually configure a certain way. Um, you know, you kind of want to think about it as like on one hand, it looks like we're sort of a traditional hosting provider, except we're really dev enabled. I think that's the big difference. Is it's about how do you live in this developer-driven, software-driven, software-defined world, right? And how do you do it when you have physical infrastructure? Now, that, that brings up an interesting point from, from my perspective. Uh, when you say, like, dev-driven, dev kind of focused, uh, yeah. are there, like, tools? Like, how, how do you make sure that focus remains kind of at your core? Do you work on tooling? Do you make sure everything's yeah. simple? Or, or how does that work? Yeah. I mean, so obviously the API itself, we want it to be simple and easy to consume. We have a lot of libraries, SDKs, uh, but a big thing is just our, our integration with like DevOps tooling. Like we have really good in integration with Terraform. We have a Terraform provider. Uh, if you look at Ansible and if you kind of look at our list, we have a bunch of different kind of cloud providers that you can interact with, with us. Um, and so the idea is to really build that dev community and really building the dev community can be really hard. And I think one of the advantages we have is, you know, our, our, our CEO likes to say, you know, get all the nerds, right? Because think about it, like, if you're into ARM, right? Like, you're really into ARM, right? And, and you know, we have the story of, there was a big complaint about Go didn't build on ARM servers, right? And it just was a big pain. Everyone had a big pain. and. We had actually reached out to Google saying, hey, could could you know, could you do an official build? And they're like, well, and it's like, we'll provide you the service to do it. And they're like, oh, I don't think there's demand. And it was like hundreds of <laughs> armed developers were like, like spamming the guy's inbox because it was like, no, we really care, right? We really, really care. So when you kind of get to this level where there's not that many people that really care about some of these things, um, you know, building community can be hard, but also is very kind of connected. Um, and so that's something we do really well is really build kind of up that developer community and sort of making sure that we understand the use cases, uh, but then also providing all the tooling, you know, sort of like if you look at kind of any of the API driven companies, it's all about sort of how easy is it to use your API? How easy is it to consume? What are all the different tools that you can integrate with? You know, developers are lazy, right? They they want a thing they can pull off the shelf and use it, and then we're really picky. So this is the weird thing. We want something that's really easy, and then we're like, yeah, but now I want it to do this, 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 and I want the customization You know, after you get through the sort of initial life cycle. So we, we try to kind of do both, where 
you get the tooling, you get the SDKs, and then sort of underneath when you really understand our value, you sort of get everything you you you, you would want. Yeah. And and I can see, you know, the, the tooling is a big thing for me, and I, I'm definitely lazy. I can see, <laughs> I, I, I want this, and then, oh, yeah, I want to be able to twist these knobs. Um, can you maybe just, you talked a little bit about the ARM Go build, uh, but are there any projects that you're like, this is this is what our company, this is exemplifies our company, something that you've heard someone doing that says, this empowered a developer, and now I have this very middle ground product that you're trying to achieve? Yeah. Well, actually, this is, I mean, a really interesting, one of our first, our first cloud meetup in Palo Alto, um, we had Intel and the main contributor of Memcache, and basically they built a project where Memcache could use kind of all the capabilities and features of the Intel Optane chip, right? And that was like something where very early on people were trying to explain, and I'm not like, like, expert on all the advantages of Intel Optane, right? Um, but but sort of the idea was that, you know, to build like software that actually works with this chip and takes advantage of it and really uses the hardware innovation that's in it, in a software-driven world, that's hard to do, right? Because if Amazon doesn't have it and you don't want to rack and stack it, what are your options, right? And so I think that enabling factor is really powerful for us is that we actually want these interesting new chips and innovations and we want to put it in our in our facilities so that you can call it and basically launch an Intel Optane chip in a, in a few minutes, right? And then build stuff on top, right? And so that's kind of, that's an example of, you know, one of the things we're, we're, we talk about is like how we like allow for hardware innovation. I mean, you think about it, like in a, in a software driven world, it's a little hard to actually get access to those things um, in, in a sort of a developer friendly way, right? So that that's an example of a project where we actually were able to kind of launch specific Optane servers that people can then hack on and build software specifically for it. So one of the uh, one of the nice parts about dealing with a, a virtualized environment is that you don't you don't necessarily have to worry about the underlying hardware. And in right. your scenario, where we, we kind of do have to worry, I mean, I guess we don't have to worry if something breaks. You guys take care of that, right? Right. But, sure. But if I'm building a cu custom like a a custom operating system image that I want to deploy as part of my solution, uh, right? I, I'm, I'm going to have to worry about things like drivers and and other configurations. Yeah. And uh, I imagine you guys have a extremely diverse set of hardware under the hood. So yeah. how, how do you overcome yeah. something like that? Yeah, I mean, that that is actually our challenge and where, you know, I think stuff that, we're, you know, you, you think about it, like we get a new server type and then we have all these different OSs like Ubuntu, CentOS, right? Um, and, you know, that also goes back to the developer community. We have, you know, contributors of Nixos that uses Packet to kind of do their builds because they they can then test on different infrastructure, right? Launch the machines, test that Nixos works, and then you know take it down, right? But yeah, that is a challenge for us. Is just if you look at our testing matrix, it's quite crazy, right? <laughs> um, and and sometimes it's very hard for us because we might get really new cutting edge stuff, really new stuff that we're trying to certify on. We have enterprise OSs plus like just general community OSs. Uh, and that is definitely a, a challenge and, and something that we're spending time to figure out how we can automate and innovate on this, uh, because that is sort of what I consider one of our strategic advantages, right? Is that for us to go out and make sure not only that Ubuntu 18 like boots, but like you can actually do, in, you know, 
yum updates or you know like do app gets right like to act, and then like restart and then we'll have problems where it'll boot and then you restart and then it doesn't work right and so yeah it's it's a lot of work um that is definitely a niche and we have people that are really kind of focused on that part of it um and it it is a challenge i i, I don't i don't want to say it's easy um it is actually a challenge for us and something that we have to spend a lot of time thinking about yeah, and I, and I don't, I don't want to fixate on on things that might be more challenging, but uh, there's also big advantages to this too, though, right? Because I, I know, like with Spectrum Meltdown, when they hit, that was a big uh -huh. deal if you were in a shared tenant environment right, or a multi-tenancy sure. environment. But if, right. if you're the sole owner of that hardware, like if you you know rented this physical box, then right. Spectrum Meltdown really didn't really wasn't an yeah. issue anymore, right? So, yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. And, and now I, I'm kind of getting confused on some of the, yeah, I, I mentioned Heartbleed, but it was really the Spectre meltdown that, that we didn't have um, a problem with. Heartbleed was the SSL stuff, but right. um, yeah. And that, and that's the point is, yeah, there's, there's those kind of advantages where, um, you know, you don't have to worry about certain things. You have other problems you have to worry about, uh, but you don't have to worry about certain things. And then if you look at the performance, it's almost not fair to compare because it's, I mean, it's just not like we're not trying to cheat. It's just a physical machine. I mean, yeah. there is no visualization. Um, and so, you know, when performance matters, um, you know, that is also a big, big deal. Right. Um, and so and so, uh, you know, that, that's an example of uh, that. That's another value prop for people. And you know, it, it kind of just hit me just now. It, these are physical machines. I can kind of understand how APIs exists for virtualized uh, kind of setups. Sure. How yeah. how are y'all doing? Maybe this is the secret sauce I that know. you can't. How I how are you how are y'all doing this? Yeah, no, it's um you know, I, yeah, I can go into a little bit of the detail. It's basically like we have these provisioning microservices that run in each of our facilities, right? And when you call our API, that request gets federated down and basically told to a specific machine saying. Go pick me a piece of gear with this set, right? You know, because they still can say types, right? I want like a T1 small or C2 medium or something, right? And that that's usually like some hardware configuration with a certain chipset or or memory and RAM and, and and bandwidth, right? And so we go and look at our inventory and say, hey, go pick me one that's available, and then basically run the provisioning job, right? And that's about actually talking to the BMC, basically rebooting booting it up into basically a guest OS like Alpine and then running like a, 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 a OS install, right? So it's a, it's a lot of like physical server automation, like talking to the BMC and trying to reboot it and, and like kind of tell it to run jobs, if you will. Uh, and then it has to like DHCP and get IP and then Pixie and then, you know, Pixie boot and all this kind of stuff that it needs to get it going. And so the, the funny thing is, any cloud provider actually has to solve this problem, right? Because you, you have to like solve the bare metal infrastructure automation before you can then put the virtual, I mean, because in the end, that's what Amazon and Google and Microsoft are doing, right? They're they're racking a bunch of servers and automating that whole thing, right? It's just that we get, let you look at it and get access to it one level lower, that's all, right? Um, and did did you guys have to like you know you mentioned the BMC did did you guys have to engineer that internally yourselves or are you using off the shelf stuff like IPMI what we try to use like off the shelf software to kind of run this whole thing 
And it ended up being easier because we needed sort of the control and build sort of the services to do specific things. So a service that only talked IPMI, right? A service that only did DHCP. Um, and so we built a bunch of like custom made Go services that allow us to kind of run the provisioning process, right? So we, we yeah, we will definitely use like kind of off the shelf tooling, like we might integrate with a tool that, you know, implements TFTP or something, right? Or, or like implements the DHCP server. but um, you know, we, we built a lot of this kind of from the ground up just from our own learnings. You know, we try to use some of the more off the shelf kind of management systems back then. Um, and it was just easier for us to actually build, um, our own, you know, excellent. Well, uh, you are listening to IT Pro TV, where we, or IT Pro TV Technado, whichever show we're on, uh, where we are interviewing Bruce Wang, vice president of software at Packet. And, uh, you know, Bruce, Earlier in the interview, you asked, or you mentioned that you weren't really competitive with uh, some of the other cloud providers out there. I wanted right. to reach back to that comment because you know when when you look at the sure. packet website and the different services yeah. and all that, um, right. it I mean it looks pretty competitive. And you mentioned yeah. performance yeah, yeah. Is, is superior. So right, right, right. Uh, so how are you playing with the other cloud providers? Right. So the the big thing really is about, and if you've seen kind of some of our our, our announcements um, with sort of edge compute and go, going to like cell towers and actually deploying infrastructure at a cell tower site. Um, and then, you know, helping Sprint Ericsson roll out their next generation IoT infrastructure. You know, what's happening is, you know, it, it's kind of like the first frontier was like, how do you automate a bunch of bare metal servers at a hyperscale location, right? A data center where you could put hundreds or thousands of racks, right? The next step is, what happens when you have to put a thousand racks over like 10,000, not 10,000, but like 10,000 racks over a thousand locations, right? Like disparate locations kind of all over the country in areas that may not be served sort of at, um, you know, a traditional like major site, right? And so in that world, when we start talking about being able to go to the edge and provide bare metal infrastructure, that's sort of ready to go and use, you can see how then for some of the cloud providers, they don't have to worry about that necessarily anymore, right? Because they could say, oh, we could deploy, you know, our, you know, Azure in a box in this location that we just don't have a place at because we don't, we're not going to go out and scope a thousand sites and figure out how to put a few servers here and there, right? And so we're actually able to reach into regions where, they may not be there or want to be there. And, and you know, I never want to say never with Amazon because they're, they're doing everything. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're disrupting every, you know, possible market there is. Um, but I think that's where we're also collaborative and we have on, I don't know if we could talk about it, but yeah, probably. We, we announced a, 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 no, well, we had our first IFX, our infrastructure kind of conference, right at the, you know, shadow of, reinvent um and we announced a partnership with um microsoft azure right to help kind of augment their edge strategy um and so and we have other deals like that uh with the other providers and so the idea is like how can we kind of collaborate in some of these areas where you know getting to the edge and working in the edge world and figuring out how all that works requires a lot of like know-how on how to put stuff in places servers in places and also provision them from a bare metal perspective, right? And and for us, you know, we once we give you the base OS, we don't know what you're going to do with it, right? It's kind of like you can run whatever software you want on top. 
Um, and that's kind of the relationship we want to build. So in that world where we're really kind of looking at enabling more locations and more hardware, uh, I think there's a lot more um, you know, partnership opportunities uh, than just purely competitive. That's really awesome. So so they're actually leveraging some of your hardware in their footprint. I, is the reverse true? Do you, do you guys ever leverage some of their hardware or is it a one yeah, street? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've talked about that, um, uh, you know, because one of our big f features we're working on is our, our, our uh, like, Cloud Connect, our um, basically, I, I don't know if we have the official name yet, because we're trying to figure out, like, what what is not copyrighted already? But it's basically our ability to connect to all the big clouds, right? It's, it's, it's physical cross-connects at, you know, their data center, you know, we're at Equinex facilities just like they are, and it's, like, physically connected, and then we can connect our you know, virtual our VLAN to their VLAN, and then basically you can hook it up, right? And so the idea is that in this new world of public cloud and edge model, it's not one or the other, right? It's a joint model. It's if you're going to go to the edge and run compute at the edge, you're still going to have to talk to something back there, right? And and maybe it's a giant, you know, your object storage or some you know data warehouse or some processing farm that you have, and you want to send data back, right? And so in that world, it's all about enabling it, and then being able to send data. Yeah. So I'm curious, we, before uh, we were talking off the air, and you kind of mentioned that that you're you're new to Packet. So can you tell us a little yeah. bit about your journey, how you uh, how you got to where you are, what you were doing before, and how that kind of set you up for this? I, I, you know, I started in software engineering, at, like in 2000, I came out to Silicon Valley, right before it went bust. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I, I went to school, uh, I went to school at Michigan from 96 to 2000. It was kind of a really fun ride during uh, time to interview at that time. Just like everyone's trying to recruit engineers and software people and people who aren't even software people. And so came out to the Valley in uh, 2000, um, just worked on a variety of software um, projects. I'd started a startup with some friends um, and actually met um, the first incarnation of Packet, uh, not first incarnation, it's the first business the founder, uh, Zach, had was a traditional hosting company. It was just, they did hosting and they racked and stacked servers and, and they put, you know, machines and turned it on. And, and uh, we had built a um, video, online video platform where we actually leveraged uh, Voxel. That was the previous company's, um, you know, server farm. And that was right when you know, EC2, S3 came out, Amazon came out and sort of like really changed the model. And, 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 you know, if you think about it, we're doing video stuff and being able to stick unlimited storage and object storage was like an amazing innovation for us, right? But we still wanted to run like our application server, database server, stuff like that on, uh, you know, kind of traditional infrastructure. And that's kind of how I got involved very early on with the packet team, because sort of the original packet team uh, at the, you know, the Voxel business. And then I went off, uh, our company got acquired and went off and ran like a cloud services team. And then I did a couple of startups. Uh, I actually left the Valley for three years, um, moved to Kansas for three, and then moved back recently to San Francisco. Um, and my last startup uh, where I was, you know, running a small uh, software team, um, you know, had an opportunity, you know, Packet was growing a lot. We already kind of knew each other from before. Uh, I, my former co-founder was like a seed investor in Packet very early on, right? Um, and then sort of kind of reintroduced us again um, and, and talked about sort of the opportunity where, you know, Packet's in this really interesting space where, 
you have to really care about data center, care about operations, care about network, physical infrastructure. But then also because we have this API and we have a lot of software, there's that piece of it as well, right? It's like, how do you marry sort of the software side plus the hardware side together, right? Um, and so they had brought me on to sort of help lead their software kind of development strategy and efforts. Um, and something that I'm really passionate about is building and scaling software teams, right? Um, and just how do you create that right culture for building good software, right? Um, and so that's kind of where, that's how my journey ended up at Packet. And so I think if you look at sort of who we brought on in terms of like people who have done hardware and network and software, it's like this really kind of interesting melting pot of talent. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think most startups go through uh, Kansas. It's like the Silicon Valley of the Midwest. Um, yeah, they actually call it Silicon Prairie, by the way. Did they? Okay, well, I, I made that up. Wow, so, right. You're a lucky guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, it's Silicon something, right? Yeah, we're Silicon Swamp here yeah. in uh, in Florida. Uh, That's right. So we'll go with that. But but uh, you know, IT Pro TV is our um, you know the, the company that, that puts on the the Technado and and uh, it's all about education. So it's good to always hear. Uh, those stories kind of to help some of our listeners understand, you know, yeah. what path that they're on. But um, so I, I wanted to, to ask you, you mentioned um, the, the BIOS kind of feature coming down the road. Any any other things that are in the works or, or things we should be looking out for? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it is actually also preparing us for sort of like being able to go to more and more sites, right? Like we're just, you know, we, we have three uh you know, cell sites that we have targeted to launch. We have one traditional sort of like data center location that we're going to have. Um, and so a lot of it is also kind of investing in those type of things where getting sites up quickly in different places and being able to kind of deploy our entire stack really easily. Um, another area, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of connect product, which lets us connect to the other clouds. And then another big push that we're making is actually in, um, like the enterprise space and sort of in what I, you know, on-premise or sort of private, like sort of packet managed facilities that are either private facilities or have our entire control plane. So we're figuring out how to like actually ship parts of our stuff that's not owned by us, right? And so, um, you know, we have some deals in the works that allows us to kind of ship our control plane or ship our pieces of our software to an on-premise or kind of private facility that people can then kind of take advantage of our API and our automation and, and our software um, and, and sort of do it in a, a variety of ways. So we're kind of spending time also to to enable that as well. Sounds yeah. good. Well, if uh, if our, our listeners and viewers want to uh, stay abreast of those updates, where, where should they check you out? Yeah, just uh, go to packet.com. Um, we used to be packet.net. We also have the .com um, <laughs> uh, domain. And uh, yeah, just check out packet.com and we talk about our sort of traditional cloud, you know, what we talked about earlier. And then you can read more about our edge edge strategy as well as our on-premise um, sort of private strategy as well. Sounds yeah. good. Well, that's refreshing that you, you got the .com. I feel like every... New companies .io these days, and I'm, I'm sick of those. But it's because all the dot coms are taken. Yeah. People don't want to pay a hundred grand for them. <laughs> like you said earlier, to, to, you got to find That's a name the for the product that it still exists. It was very expensive to get dot com. Yeah. I could tell you. 
<laughs> it's like your next product will just be a string of numbers and letters. It'll look like a, right, right. a password. Yeah, exactly. it, it's what's available, so we got to go with it. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, well, thank you so yeah. much, uh, Bruce, for taking the time with us today, and uh, really appreciate having you on. Uh, any any final thoughts, guys? Anything we didn't cover? No, it certainly looks cool. If you haven't checked it out, jump over to packet.com. Uh, you know, just like any cloud provider, you can spin up instances pretty quick. It's uh, fun to mess around yeah. with. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to definitely dive in there and, and check out some of the tooling to see how lazy I can actually be. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll, then we'll have a whole new slew of questions, and we'll uh, we'll get get you back on here and, and ask you about those after uh, Justin has a chance to mess around. Yeah, Sound you good? can just complain. I mean, we, we, we also are making a big push in improving also our API and just kind of we have that continuous improve it. So I uh, definitely love to hear your feedback and uh, want to learn kind of how we can make your experience better. So. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Bruce, and thank you all of you for watching. But don't go away yet. We've got more Technado coming up right after this. Enjoying Technado? Then you'll want to check out Asks Me Anything, another podcast from the IT Pro TV network. In each episode, the subject matter experts from IT Pro TV field questions submitted by viewers like you from Twitter using the hashtag Asks Me Anything. Learn more at itpro.tv slash podcasts. All right, welcome back to Technado. That was a that was a great interview. It was kind of cool to hear not only uh, what they're all about, but his story and, and, and how he got there as well. Any... Uh, any takeaways? Anything you were surprised by? I'm kind of interested to see how this whole cell phone tower thing plays out. I, I, I want to see what that entails. So I'm going to have to dig a little bit deeper into that. Yeah, I, I didn't really get that. So, so, I mean, I, I understand what they do now much better, but where, where do the cell phone towers fit in? So if you're trying to provide access in rural areas, you want to get as close to people as possible. Cell, cell towers are a great way to do it. T-Mobile last year, we, we actually we covered this on the podcast. Um, T-Mobile said, you, normally you have a cell phone tower and there's an antenna up top and it's got to run down to a, uh, like a central office or some kind of control station nearby. They built this box where the control station was actually mounted up on the tower with the antenna. So they're already putting computers on the towers. Here, they're saying, hey, let's put runnable infrastructure on those towers. And so now you can get infrastructure as close to your clients as possible, even in rural areas. So that sounds like a situation where they get a client, then they they go and, and deploy something if it makes sense. It's not like they're just deploying out there and hoping for... Maybe. I mean, uh, I mean, I can see where if you had a lot of like negative space or just kind of wasted space, why not put things in there? Because if you have rural areas and maybe your clientele is predominantly rural individuals, yeah. you can reduce latency, you can give better performance. Uh, but I, I just, I just kind of want to see one to see yeah. what that looks like. There's a tower really close you can climb. Uh, yeah, not me. I'd love to, <laughs> love to record that. Uh, the uh, the six foot step ladder is a little too much for me. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, yeah, that was a cool interview, and uh, we're really appreciative to uh, to Bruce for joining us, and hopefully we can uh, talk to them again when they, they have some new announcements and check those out. But a couple of things before we let you go uh, real quick. Wanted to let you know uh, about some webinars coming up uh, from IT Pro TV. We actually had one that we just did that will uh, be in the archive here very soon about the 10 must-have skills for leadership in IT. Uh, that was with Joe Peacock and uh, – that will, uh, if you head over to itpro.tv slash webinars, you can see all these, all the webinars that are coming up and the ones that are in the past that you can go and watch 
on demand. So that one will be on demand very soon. Uh, but we also have a cool one with you, Don, coming up next uh, two weeks, two weeks from now, uh, the five common questions about starting an IT career. And we're actually bringing in Zach Hill uh, from the YouTube channel, IT Career Questions. And so uh, we'll have Don's perspective and, and Zach's, and that'll be a really cool one. So uh, check out itpro.tv slash webinars uh, to learn more and register uh, for that. Uh, also want to let you know about an offer uh, for everyone listening to TechNado. Uh, I've got a special offer code for you at ITProTV. Uh, head over to go.itpro.tv slash TechNado. Uh, you can find out uh, about some uh, demos for, for your team, or you can uh, check out a personal subscription using uh, a promo code to get 30% off of your subscription. Also get seven days free when you uh, sign up for a membership there, so you can really check it out uh, before you're too committed. And uh, you can start uh, start getting your IT training uh, up to speed here in the new year. We're, well, I guess we're almost done with January, but people are you know still procrastinating on those resolutions. I think. So. Yeah, it, it's 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 close enough. Yeah. Right, close enough for government work, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I wanna I wanna say thanks to you guys, uh, not just for uh, you know a great a great podcast today, but for also holding it together during that uh, <laughs> that story about Slack. I think we. Uh, we defied the odds. It, it was a real struggle. I'm I'm not gonna lie. If you go back and watch it, it's just me, kind of. <laughs> I gotta hold it together. Yeah. How do I not get named in a lawsuit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And all uh, the inappropriate things I I wanted to say, I'll, I'll go ahead and just post on Twitter, um, so you can check those out there. Yeah. I'm no way affiliated with any of those things that he says oh, on Twitter. I, then why am I tagging you in each of these posts? <laughs> You've already taken over my domain. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I apologize about that, but uh, yeah, I'll give those back soon. All right, thank you, uh, guys, and thank you, everyone, for watching and listening today, and we will see you next time on Technado.